LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Christopher Beish, who joins us to discuss his book, LSD and the Mind of the Universe, Diamonds from Heaven. In 1979, Beish took the first step on what would become a life-changing journey. Drawing from his training as a philosopher of religion, he set out to explore his mind and the mind of the universe as deeply and systematically as possible with the help of the psychedelic drug LSD. Over the course of 20 years, the 73 high-dose LSD sessions drew him into a deepening communion with cosmic consciousness. Beish tells how he touched the living intelligence of our universe, an intelligence that both embraced and crushed him, and demonstrates how direct experience of the divine can change our perspective on life, the universe, and everything. Making a powerful case for the value of psychedelically induced spiritual experience, the author shares his immersion in the fierce love and creative intent of the unified field of consciousness that underlies all physical existence. He describes the incalculable value of embracing the pain and suffering he encountered in his sessions and the challenges he faced integrating these experiences into his everyday life. Hello and welcome Chris and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Glad to be here. Chris, today we're going to be talking about your latest book. It's entitled LSD and the Mind of the Universe, subtitled Diamonds from Heaven. Before we dive into that, just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general. Well, um, I've been a university professor for most of my professional life, all of my professional life. I worked for 33 years uh, as a professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies in Ohio, in a state university in Ohio. But in my uh, nighttime job, I began a psychedelic inquiry way back uh, 40 years ago, 1979, 42 years ago. And I worked for 20 years in high-dose psychedelic work um, and then concluded that work in 1999 and published about it now in uh, 2020, 2019. Well, having just recently completed your book, I have to say it's profoundly moving. It really is. I reread many parts of it and I spent quite a lot of time pausing while reading it to think about what I was reading to try and assimilate it. The issue here is, for anyone listening, some people will have experience with psychedelics, possibly LSD, maybe other substances. Uh, Many people will not. Uh, I wouldn't discourage anyone from continuing to listen to our conversation if this isn't their area of experience because I feel that your book has a does have a profound message and it's one that not the experiences you had are are very very rare among our species and not everyone has to go through what you went through experience what you experienced to take something away from it that's how I feel at the end of the book but 
You did this, uh, you can begin to tell us about this in a second, but you embarked on this 20-year-long odyssey, psychedelic odyssey, 73 sessions, I believe, in total of high-dose LSD. And there's just a little quote uh, in your book, which I like, that if someone said to me, well, what, is, what did he come away from all this with? And... Or how do you describe, if someone said to me, how do you describe the, you know, the psychedelic experience? And I say, well, beyond all the sort of, all the fun and games and the, the you know, the, the, the shocks and the scares and the wild ride of the whole thing, I said, you come away with something, and I'll quote from your book, the idea that there is, quote, an intelligence behind the things that exist in the universe. There is purpose exhibited by this intelligence and that it is humanly possible to access some elements of this intelligence and learn some aspects of its purpose. So if someone said to me, why can the psychedelic experience be meaningful? I said, well, try that for a start. So I don't know if you'd like to add anything to that or begin to flesh out how you embarked on this, this, what is really your life's work, I suppose. It was my life's work. Uh, And I think... What we're seeing with psychedelics, when they have, we're seeing, of course, now they've entered the therapeutic arena with a great deal of uh, impact, and we're learning to harness this uh, evocative power that psychedelics bring for healing. But it's also, uh, in a larger arena, humanity is taking uh, psychedelics across a philosophical line. They're using the amplified states of consciousness that psychedelics make possible for hours at a time to explore deeper dimensions of the psyche and eventually, I think, discovering what every spiritual culture discovers, at the bottom of the psyche, there is no bottom to the psyche. You fall out the bottom of your individual psyche into an ocean of psyche, into an ocean of mind, so that just as the air that's inside your lungs is inside the air outside of us, mind is fundamentally like that too, that our mind has an interior private cove, but it opens into a much, much larger ocean of mind, so large it's hard to know how to describe it. And I think as a culture, we are beginning to explore these deeper dimensions of mind using psychedelics. And so the trick is to explore them in a systematic way and to record them as systematically as possible and to learn what one can learn not only from individual psychedelic sessions. And by what I mean by a psychedelic session, I'll explain in a second, it's a formal thing, but not only by one a psychedelic session or several but an entire series of coordinated, disciplined psychedelic sessions so that it's pushing you deeper and deeper and deeper into the universal fields of consciousness. And and I think that's the story. Um, Any one person's attempt to go uh, the distance into this dimension is uh, likely to be incomplete, uh, certainly. Uh, But all of us together... Humanity as a collective, as a sort of an anthropological, psycho-conscious exploration, uh, all of us together, I think, are beginning to cross this territory, and that's opening up just extraordinarily exciting horizons in philosophy. This is the opening of a new philosophical method, uh, the systematic expo- expansion of consciousness in disciplined setting, and then processing those experiences for their, in a sense, philosophical content. I think for many people, LSD, no matter what age they are, but if they have heard of it at all, it's associated with you know the counterculture um, of the yes. 60s. 
and then it maybe became something that was oh that was outlawed and, and that was kind of the end of that so and certainly mm-hmm. in, in terms of recreational drugs you know the sort of drugs du jour of different generations it it seemed to fall off the radar probably again because of you know prohibition uh but certainly when when i was growing up in the 80s and the 90s that was it was around but and and you could if you went looking you could find information about the mm-hmm. the the research being done like you know serious research but in terms of it and it's kind of in popular culture it was a historical thing to do with hippies and it kind of mm-hmm. disappeared so for a lot of younger people maybe uh people of you know your your children's generation or even younger than that it's mm-hmm. something that's a sort of a, a very distant sort of cultural reference and there's and imagine there's a lot of people very surprised to learn about the research that has subsequently resumed and uh you know the progress that has been made because for example a lot of your own work um by necessity was done uh, in private you know behind closed doors yeah, I'm part of that transitional generation where uh, I came out of graduate school in 1978. Uh, LSD research had been already made illegal in about 1970. Stan Groff published his first book, Realms of the Human Unconscious, in 76. I read it. I immediately uh, decided to act on it. And so I'm part of that underground generation after they were made illegal, but while this research was still in the process of being assimilated by the intellectual community. And so, but to do this, I had to go underground. I had to do this work covertly in in my private life. I did not bring it into my academic life at the university. I taught courses in psychedelic research uh, and taught Stan Groff's work and other other psychotherapist work, but I never let my students know that I was doing this work personally. There was a, I had to keep that veil of secrecy because of the, the legal situation around LSD. And it was only after I retired and after I no longer worked for the state that I was, and passed the statute of limitations, that I was able to uh, speak openly and freely about the most philosophical uh, important work that I do, that I did. You mentioned the statute of limitations, and anyone who comes to read your book, or maybe has already read it, the idea that, that anyone would take the time or trouble to prosecute you for what you did to, to, you know, it, to yourself in your own time, you know, with your own resources, it just seems absurd. What's your take on why psychedelics were, I know there's a slightly varying picture in different parts of the world, but we're thinking of like North America and Western Europe now, uh, why they were um, made illegal in the first place. Well, I'm, I'm not an expert in this area, of course, and uh, so I yield to people more informed than I am, but psychedelics did get entangled with uh, the political uh, revolution that was taking place during the Vietnam War, uh, that that whole political scene got complicated with psychedelics, and I think our culture just was not in any way prepared to understand the enormity of the states of consciousness that were pouring into this generation's uh, minds. It just was just a, such a mind-shattering experience. But it just became illegal for political reasons, not for psychological reasons, not because there were suicides, which have never really been able to be documented, but for political reasons. I know that uh, at the end of the 60s and into the 70s, you know, they, they talk about the sort of, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the end of the hippie culture and um, and Vietnam certainly cast a shadow over all that. And you, you know, you had Altamont and people have written about how the tone, colour of the society was changing. But 
In terms of the overall trajectory, I think, of certainly American society, but, but definitely Western industrial nations, it was still very much on the up. It was the idea of material progress and science and progress mm-hmm. and what have you. So, you know, all the post-war boom, uh, all the progress and consumerism of the 50s and 60s, you know, Vietnam, whatever, that was seen as, and even the, the downturn, you know, in the 70s, like New York and places like that were pretty grim then. It was still seen as a bit of a temporary blip. And then you had, you know, the, the era of Reagan came along morning in America again. So as you say, the, 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 the society weren't really ready for anything like that. It was very much materialism. You know, this, this is one life you've got. Get out there. The getting's good. Get stuff, mm-hmm. you know, uh, while you still can. And mm-hmm. whereas I think today, uh, well, for some time, actually, you could say certainly maybe for since the, the dawn of the 21st century, all sorts of things have been changing that are beginning to open doors again, shall we say, uh, in this respect. To a deeper understanding of ourselves and what life is about. I agree completely. And now I track this from an academic side. And so academically, here are the areas that I've worked in. are I started with reincarnation research because I became aware that there was an extraordinarily important body of research truly documenting the continuity of memories between lifetimes. This is Ian Stevenson's research at Virginia, University of Virginia. But there was also amazing research coming through in near-death episode research. People who have nearly died or almost died or did die and came back. Uh, extraordinary continuity of their experiences. And uh, in other areas in parapsychological research, but then comes psychedelic research, um, there's a tremendous congruence that emerges between these disciplines that I've just mentioned. Uh, there is a fundamental overlap in their worldview, and that's that's a very exciting uh, observation. And um, that's one of the things I was discussing in my uh, second book, Dark Night, Early Dawn, the one I first started talking about uh, psychedelic experiences. Well, of course, some of the ideas that you're exploring in your new book, well, that you're documenting, say, these decades of your experiences, they're not new concepts. They're not, these are not new worlds, as it were. There's a lot of ancient mm-hmm. cosmologies that reflect a lot of what you were experiencing. Mm-hmm. So I think that perhaps since the scientific revolution or perhaps that combined with the industrial revolution, there's actually a relatively short period of time when we as a species have become completely cut off from some of these ideas where, you know, where things have become very fragmented and atomized and compartmentalized. And, you know, the idea of us being completely separate from the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the worlds of nature around us, that's a, mm-hmm. a product of scientific thinking, but it's a relatively short thing, but it's become so dominant in that uh, short space mm-hmm. of time that it's now, it's a given, isn't it really? So the idea mm-hmm. is that you're, putting forward and asking people to consider and open themselves to for a lot of people they're i mean they're basically just they seem to see it as religious essentially yeah Yeah. but then i think the nature of our time in history is that we're taking down uh, categories of boundaries between science and religion not to obscure either of them and i don't see myself as being particularly religious what i see is taking a, a as close to objective approach as i can Using technology coming out of the, the scientific world today, LSD is, you know, 
created in a scientific lab, and to explore questions that classically have been attributed to the religion, but I don't want to use religious technology, religious assumptions. I'm using a different kind of enterprise. But here's the thing. What the world that we discover uh, in this systematic application of psychedelics is not different than the world which has been discovered by the deepest spiritual traditions from antiquity. So uh, there is a lot of continuity. You're completely correct. A lot of observations that I make or that I encounter in the book, you find echoes of, you find repeated in, um, in Vajrayana Buddhism, in Christianity. Um, it's simply what I think we have is a different technology, a different method for accessing these states. And again, I, I don't want to get into a, a comparison of how they're accessed in meditation or by natural means and whether it's a difference when you access them in these temporary means using these synthetic substances. That's an important discussion. It's just a discussion that don't want to move into now. I think there's a, a profound phenomenological overlap between these experiences so that... Um, well, when I say these experiences, let me say a little bit more maybe about what I'm talking about, what kind of experiences we're talking about. Uh, because it's one of the challenging things in telling a journey, a 20-year journey, is describing the different stages of this long journey and the transitions at these key midpoints or transition points into deeper orders of intelligence or deeper orders of consciousness. And uh, while the early stages are kind of somewhat more familiar with um, other contexts, in the later stages they get less familiar uh, and therefore more uh, challenging to describe. Uh, but it's the, it's the enormous breadth of it. And I, and I feel apologetic actually for almost like apologizing for what I'm about to put the reader through because I know I'm making enormous demands on their credibility and even to ask them to consider seriously the scale of things I'm talking about. I know that in some places I could easily be seen as a madman uh, because the claims are so seemingly bold, but they're just, I've just tried to describe as clearly as I can just what happened on this 20-year journey. And as I went through it, I experienced at least five transitions or major breakthroughs into different operational modes of consciousness or levels of reality. Yes, well, people who have never uh, perhaps had any experience with LSD or other psychedelic substances, mm -hmm. they may have read about, you know, warping your perceptions and how completely changed those can be. But there is a, a huge language problem, isn't there? Uh, as there is in a lot of things in the world, you know, like even poetry has found itself wanting when trying to describe feelings of love, for example. So the, mm -hmm. very, the very fact that you've embarked on this is quite something in itself, because as I said to you at the beginning off air, I've had, you know, limited LSD experiences, but that help, mm -hmm. that helps immeasurably to yeah. read about your experiences and understand how this could be. You know, at least I've got uh, my foot in the door and I can think, yes, I understand what he's saying. It's mind-blowing. I can't imagine 
ex- having the same experience, but I can understand at least mm-hmm. 1% of 1% of 1% of what it might be. I suppose the question then is, since you felt that you were able to and trying to communicate with people, what have you found that works or what doesn't work? Or how have you refined your attempts to communicate with those who really don't have you know, a handle to grab onto with, with your experiences? Well, I talked to, as you say, sort of two different groups of people. One are people who have psychedelic experience, and then that's one kind of conversation. And a second conversation of people who haven't had psychedelic experience. And I've had many people write me uh, who have read the book, and you, and they've said, you know, I've never done psychedelics, but I've been a meditator all my life, and I I absolutely affirm what you're saying. I've had these kind of experiences. And then they go on. And I think that that really is true, that there there is a, a real overlap with uh, non-psychedelic uh, experiences. And I'm hoping, too, that, uh, you know, I'm really hoping that... Uh, the, there will be people who read my book who aren't really interested in psychedelics but are willing to listen to the experiences that emerge because they're about cosmology. They're about insights into how our life functions, how the universe functions. And while they are certainly incomplete, they do con- contain, I think, core insights for what's taking place in the world and therefore uh, they they can be useful to people and valuable to people who never would think or be inclined to go and get them themselves, uh, get these experiences themselves from their own psychedelic work. And so I'm hoping that the book will be useful to people who aren't interested in psychedelics, and I hope it will be interested interesting to people who do do psychedelics in a thoughtful manner, uh, because, and that's a different kind of conversation we can have. Well, I think but it does help to have that kind of preliminary experience. Of course, of course. I think there's also many people have read popular science books about quantum physics um, mm. and taken something away from it that really has begun to make them, you know, question their their perspective on on reality and on existence, even though they know nothing about quantum physics as such, or they may have no scientific background as such, but a well narrated account even if it's a speculative one because that's all we can really do at this point in time isn't it when we're at these kind of frontiers of reality is is try and communicate with the tools that we have yes and what's happening with psychedelics is that in addition to our incredibly powerful intellectual tools now we have an opportunity to add uh, an exper- a set of experiential tools that so that we're actually unfolding experiences. Now, classically, you know, the rational side of the community are, are, have really been suspicious of experiences. They, they prefer reason, as if reason weren't an experience. But I think uh, what we're finding is that there are whole categories of experiences that are trustable, that are not, um, um, they are not functions of pathology. Pathology, or that uh, they are clear and replicable and uh, existentially uh, valuable and insightful. Uh, and these are stable across sessions and across populations. So, yeah, I think it's just opening up all sorts of new possibilities for us. 
Well, the people who've uh, listened to this show many times, some of them might roll their eyes about what I'm about to say, because I'm going to mention this thing about dreams yet again. When I was a child, particularly if I had a bad dream, and I went to the adults and told them about this, they would say, don't worry about it, it's not real. And I would wonder, in what sense was that not real? Because I woke in a sweat or I woke up crying or whatever. It felt pretty damn real at the time. So if I ever talk to people about psychedelic experience and I'm trying to just give them, and they haven't had any, and I'm trying to just maybe give them a handle that would be useful, something to think about, I say, "What's what's the weirdest dream you can remember? And they might say something, oh, I don't know. Well, there was this time when... I find myself, you know, flying around Saturn on the back of a, you know, a, mm-hmm. a, a jeweled elephant and then suddenly realized I was the elephant. And then next thing I knew, I was back on Earth having a chicken dinner and then I was back on Saturn again. And I'd say, <laughs> OK, well, that's pretty damn weird. I said, well, that's quite a trip, you know. <laughs> and I, I yeah. said, if, if somebody dosed you with LSD without you knowing, you might well find yourself doing uh-huh. something like that. Yeah. So at least it begins to... to Show them yeah. how they could have an experience that, that warped reality beyond anything yeah. that they previously could conceive of. And, yes. you know, everybody has dreams. So, and, you know, whatever yeah. people make of them. And now imagine that same kind of catalytic amplifying energy uh, being uh, internalized, uh, entering in what I call the Kiva, you know, the southwestern Pueblo Native American hole in the ground where they, they go into the hole in the earth and then pull up the ladder and they, they sit in this hole in the earth with, uh, centered around a fire and, uh, do the peyote or the sacred, uh, sacrament. And I think this, all that catalytic energy that's in LSD, imagine it now internalized, not in, not in engaging with the world, but staying in an absolute kind of meditative chamber with your eyes closed and then having the experience amplified many times by the careful application of powerful music. To me, and then, of course, the, the dose levels I worked at 500 to 600 micrograms, if I were to give kind of an, an analogy for what it's like over time, it really is kind of like this many times for this many years, it's like following an atom bomb or even more powerful, swallowing lightning. This It, it, it doesn't just sort of melt the edges and, and let you open up piecemeal into the edges of your personal unconscious, but used at these levels and this sustained, it it literally just blows your consciousness into pieces as you dissolve into, into what? I mean, into fields of consciousness and just systematically blowing far, far field for five hours at a time, six hours at a time, and then slowly congealing, bringing your experiences back into your human form again, where you can digest them for a couple of months before going out again. I did this about, uh, on average, about five times a year uh, during the period when I was working. So it, it, it's an unusually kind of deep participatory dissolving into um, the fiber of existence. And I think we have a lot of evidence for the patterns in the ayahuasca community or the wonderful ayahuasca art when one dissolves in this systematic way as they do in Sainte Daime. The deeply visionary experiences and the layers and layers and layers of intelligent life in the spiritual world that ayahuasca art depicts. 
hasn't been exactly my experience, but that's that's what gets interesting is the different complexities of different substances and different communities, but the overlapping patterns in their experience. There's a few strands that, that come together here, what we've already talked mm-hmm. about. That you Another quote from your book is, um, it jars my soul to realize how watered down reality is inside space-time. Yeah. And by space-time, you're referring to basically the, the, the space that you and I are in now, that people listening to this, that we're all sharing, that yes. many people take to be all there is. And one of the things that you take away from psychedelic experience, but also if people think about this from your dreams, is that uh, we're living with quite a narrow rule set of possibilities here in terms of what can be done physically, spatially. You know, we say we think we can't fly, we can't turn into other beings, um, mm-hmm. we can't become invisible, uh, all these different things that, you know, that, that we think we can and cannot be done. And say, think about your dreams, people, and all the, the mind-bending things that happen in there, all the warping of what you consider to be reality. Well, that's just a hint at some of the possibilities that exist in other levels of reality. And the thing we mentioned earlier about ancient cosmologies, whether anyone studied this or not, if they do so, then they find that these ideas go back a very long time, not just through you know spiritual or psychedelic traditions and uh, practices, but through wider society at various times. You know, there were times in the past that the, the populace in general understood that there were other levels of reality that were beyond their five senses. They took that for granted. They knew that these levels of reality were inhabited by beings that were different from them. And they knew also that the level of reality, we are space-time, could meld and interact with that. And they also understood, and again, from the Bible to all the other major creation stories, they understood that there's there's somewhere that we come from that we go to, and that's one of the main things that uh, the consequences of modern materialism is that we're completely cut off, not only just from the rest of life on the planet, but also from each other, even from ourselves, uh, you know, internally and externally, but and almost certainly from anything beyond what we perceive as as five sense reality. Yes, it it is. It was part of my journey that I, for about a two year period, uh, several years into it. When I started entering what I came to describe archetypal reality, in overlapping with the descriptions given by Plotinus and also by Carl Jung, uh, archetypal reality, but I had this repeated experience when I was entering this reality that it was more real than space-time. And that was really kind of upsetting to me because we're used to something being either real or not real, but it... But I learned that reality is something that admits of degrees, that they're kind of degrees of reality. And very much as, you know, the, in the prisoner in Plato's, Plato's cave that, uh, is only lives in the world of shadows and then suddenly encounters the world of light, of lighted objects. Uh, psychedelics have taken me into, into levels consistently which are more real than space time. And it turns out that that doesn't mean space time is, is in some way defective or anything, but it it conveys a sense that space-time is this magnificent reality which is resting upon and is rooted in a more fundamental reality, and this more fundamental reality kind of enters and flows through space-time the way sap kind of flows through a tree, And, and, and so that time and space is not just suspended in nothing, 
but it's suspended in an, a more fundamental fields of energy of an intelligence that the intelligence that we see operating inside time and space everywhere we touch it we're encountering layers and layers of intelligence that we never realized before but all of that in intelligence which is space-time is actually informed by in in ways that i don't begin to understand yet but is structured by influenced by uh, levels of reality that are more primary than this reality is. And that there are different degrees of, of reality even in those realities. So the image that emerges is somewhat like, and not that different from scientists talking about dark energy and dark matter, that there is this invisible, more fundamental reality, which is the context within and responsible for space-time. Something, you know, like that happens in psychedelic experience as well. It, it always appeared to me um, from when I was very young and beginning to read about ideas about, you know, the, the, the where, where creation came from and was there any meaning and purpose to it all, that everything in, you know, the natural world seemed absolutely wondrous and somehow quite unlikely and certainly intelligent. It appeared to me there was intelligence everywhere you looked. You know, from the design of, uh, I use the word advisedly, the design of flowers and animals and our own bodies and our, our minds. And, and, and yet, and you'll even read, um, I remember even learning at school, you'd read, you know, some scientists actually waxing quite lyrical about their, their discoveries and, the, you know, the beauty of looking down their electron microscopes and going, oh, wow, this is amazing. But yet to take that, the next step, which is to say, well, what is the intelligence behind this? But say, oh, well, there couldn't possibly be any. We decided that a while ago. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so therefore, it was like, you know, that, that particular avenue of, of exploration and possibility has been closed off. Yeah, and, surprise. Yeah. It, it turns out that that's a closed mind. It turns out they're not that hard to open under the right circumstances. And I think that's the great value of psychedelics because strategically, carefully, conscientiously, we can introduce people to levels of experience of their own being which connect to the universe, which changes their minds. You know, Stan Groff has found that every single individual, no matter what their prior conditioning, no matter what their prior beliefs or lack of beliefs were, once they moved through the level that he calls the perinatal level of consciousness and reconnect deeply with spiritual reality, every one of them, became convinced that there was a multi a multi-dimensional universe and a spiritual reality. So it's simply a matter of giving people the opportunity to experience these things which can be done safely in a mature and responsible manner. That concludes part 1 of our interview. Part 2 will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. legalizefreedom.com.